For every problem, there is a solution. The trick is getting folks to agree on it. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Tuesday, June 13th, and this is In the Moment. State legislators are at work this summer untangling the problem of long-term care in South Dakota, but it's a complicated issue with plenty of history. Tim Rave with the South Dakota Association of Healthcare Organizations joins us for an update from the industry's perspective. And later, semi-trailer manufacturers, safety inspectors, and more disagree on how to prevent deadly crashes. The new Frontline documentary, America's Dangerous Trucks, investigates. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. The owner of a popular South Dakota restaurant has closed down his kitchen for good. New owners take over the property next month. That leaves the employees and customers of Jodine's Steakhouse and Lounge with their memories of good food and good company. SDPB's Zadia Abbott has more. Jodine's last day held a bittersweet air. Customers enjoyed the home-style food while they laughed and shared stories. After a half a century of community involvement in Yankton, Owner Doug Nielsen says it's time for a change. He started the business alongside his late parents, John and Dini. Now he reflects on the commitment it's taken. You know, good memories, bad memories is more of like a marriage. You know, uh, 51 years, you have lots of things to think about, lots of things to remember. Nielsen says he no longer wants the stress of business ownership and is excited about what's next. Slowing down for him means time for travel, volunteering, or becoming an employee instead of an employer. The community's admiration for Nielsen showed as customers shared stories about why they loved the restaurant. He took a picture with a customer who brought her mother all the way from Nebraska for one more Jodine's lunch. At another table, a couple who ate at the restaurant on every anniversary. The emotion of the last day stirred customers, employees, and even Jack Nielsen. Jodine specialized in comfort foods. The feeling shared with his customers was not lost on Nielsen. I feel so honored to let that my customers have let us do the cooking for them for all these years. I just feel very, very honored. Nielsen says goodbyes are the hardest part. He says over the years, his staff has become family, and for some of them, Jodine's has become a tradition. Vicki Swenson worked there for more than two decades, including the last day. You know, my two children worked here when they were teenagers, and then my son has three children and all three of them worked here you know when they became 14 and one granddaughter still works here as a cashier once in a while whenever she's needed even though she has a full-time job now you know they're all young adults now so it's, just, it's been a family affair. Swenson left her full-time job four years ago to work at the restaurant. She plans to retire now but for some employees the future is a challenge. Cindy Welch worked at Jodine's for 46 years. She fell in love with her husband when they both worked in the kitchen then she became a mother and the restaurant manager. Now Welch says she's scared about a new adventure. I mean, to go out into this new world, that's so different compared to when I first applied for a job here. It's like, are you hiring? Jack would put a paper down and goes, yes, give me your name and phone number. Now you got to fill it out completely and all that sort of stuff. It's like, I probably don't even know how to really fill out a job app. So that's just the scary part of it. Welch says she's excited to have more time to spend with family. Over the years, she loved getting to watch employees and regular Dodine's customers as their lives changed. One little girl told Welch she'll remember the restaurant partly for its theme song. 
She goes, yeah, I wake up to the Jodine's jingle every morning. And she was singing it to me at the checkout. And I said, you know what? You're going to have to sing that for the rest of your life because you're done hearing it. So, I don't, you know, it's, it's just a loss. And I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. New owners have bought the building and the land effective July 1st. Jack Nielsen says he's not sure what will happen next. But until then, he and his employees are emptying out the building. Nielsen has partnered with an auction company, and everything from kitchen equipment to wall decorations will be up for sale. The two-day auction will take place on June 19th and 20th. I'm SDPB's Zadie Abbott. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. In late May, Lori Walsh spoke with State Senator Gene Hunhoff about the challenges of long-term care in South Dakota. Senator Hunhoff is the chair of the legislature's study committee on sustainable models for long-term care. That study is ongoing. Today, we're going to get a different perspective from an organization representing the healthcare industry in South Dakota. Tim Rave is president and CEO of the South Dakota Association of Healthcare Organizations, or SADAHO, and he joins me now by phone. Tim Rave, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for your time today. Oh, gosh, happy to do it. Thank you for having me on, Jackie. Appreciate the time. Very, very glad to give it to you. Um, long-term care is such a critical issue, has been for years in South Dakota. This isn't the first time we've had some legislative action or study on this. Um, the, the study committee met, I think, just yesterday, and I want to start with a big topic of that conversation yesterday, which was the moratorium on nursing home beds in South Dakota. And I'm wondering if you can give folks a little bit of a history lesson on what that moratorium means and maybe why we have it to start with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, great question, Jackie. Um, I think the short version is that the moratorium on beds was placed, and I'm going to get the dates wrong, but it was during the second Janklo uh, gubernatorial administration. And really, I think the concern at that time, Jackie, was the fact that um, there was a significant rise in the number of residents that were uh, taking up Medicaid-funded beds, so that'd be dollars that are paid for by the state uh, through Medicaid, the Medicaid program. And it was just really becoming almost an insurmountable amount of money to, uh, to cover. And so they put a cap or a moratorium on the number of those beds. Concurrently, interestingly, that was about the time that assisted living and some of the other home health options, but probably more frankly at that time, assisted living really took off. And so it took a lot of pressure off. You know, you could just imagine that was kind of a bridge for folks to go into assisted living. They could stay there a little bit longer with a little bit more help where they couldn't be at home. And then, you know, towards the end of their, their lives would transition to a long-term care facility. And so it shortened up that time, and really we've stayed under the cap by, I'd have to go back and look, gosh, Jackie, I think we're probably 1,300, 1,400 beds under the cap today on the moratorium. It's, mm. it's significant. We're not going to reach that cap. So that's really the really kind of brief history of moratorium beds. Right. So And it's so interesting that in a lot of ways that was a solution to, to a problem, and now we have a very different problem. It's not so much the number of beds. What I'm The way I'm reading the scenario is it's not so much the number of beds, it's where they are and if they're close to home for a lot of people, and that's a very different kind of problem to solve. Uh, what are you hearing from the members of your organization and the people you serve about the critical issues at play here? 
Yeah, I think you described it very well, Jackie. I would only add, I think, really one other critical component. Uh, that's probably a three-legged stool there, I mm -hmm. guess would be the way to say that, is the workforce in those areas. So, yeah. you know, you're right. You're talking about distances that families have to travel as homes continue to close. I think we've lost 15 homes in the last five-ish years. Uh, really, we only started with about 110 when I started this position uh, at Sadaho uh, going on five years ago. So, um, you know, that trend continued to escalate. Last year, we lost seven in one calendar year. And that really, I think, was kind of the genesis of the idea of doing this summer study to see what if we could do anything. And I think you started out by describing it very well. Jackie, that, you know, in the 21 years I've been around this process this year, um, either in or out of the legislature itself, um, we have done, this will be the fourth, I believe, what I would say, air quote, long-term study. And But I think this one has a different tone because of the, the, the heavy number of closures we saw last calendar year. And I think it just, people are going in with a very solution-oriented mindset. And so, kind of globally looking at all um, multiple areas we'll probably cover here later in the in this uh, discussion. Right. I want to point out in yesterday's meeting, uh, lawmakers have been split into kind of these five different working groups looking at different prongs of, of the scenario. Part of that, like you say, is the, the workforce issue, regulatory issues, innovation issues, location, infrastructure, community-based services. Um, in your role with Sadaho, what would be a best case scenario for what comes out of this summer study on long term yeah. care? You know, again, great, great question, Jackie. I think the infrastructure in my mind, along with workforce and a lot of these federal regulatory issues, and I think for us, it's more finding on the, in that regulatory space, finding the issues that are the most burdensome that we can address with our federal delegation to try and fix some of those challenges. But I think Going back to the infrastructure, I think this cannot, uh, this has to be lifted up. The fact that uh, a huge majority of our long-term care facilities in this state are over 70 years old, um, you know, that is, that to me is kind of critical mass with you don't have enough workers, you don't have facilities that are in good physical structure shape anymore. They're just getting very old and kind of tired. That's probably the way I would say it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think to me, really focusing on some dollars to help with infrastructure, to incentivize folks to do infrastructure, you know, with the margins that they aren't making today, you simply can't build or expand or even refresh a lot of these facilities. And um, so I think to me, that's one of the key things. And if we can come out with some workforce ideas, I think that's uh, probably the next best thing that we could do uh, in some points, you know, at some point in, in some of these very small communities, Jackie, that are very rural, the workforce challenge is just not going to get any better. I mean, there's some things we can do to help support them, uh, but that's going to be a huge challenge going forward. Right. Uh, there's been some conversation, the way some communities and some facilities are handling that workforce issue uh, comes uh, in the realm of travel nursing and, and travel employees for these issues. Of course, that's pricey. Uh, and there's a lot of conversations around that. Where do you where do you see where does Sadaho stand on that conversation and, and potential solutions? Yeah, I, you, you, you summed it up well. Uh, traveling nursing is, you know, is, is very expensive. Unfortunately, it's a necessity at this point um, because it really stands in the way of closure in a lot of facilities. If they didn't have travel nurses, they simply wouldn't have 
the ability to even open the doors in the morning. So, you know, I think we kind of put a pin in that. We have to have it. We try and minimize it where you can. I think one of the things we're doing at Sadaho that is really exciting that we just uh, learned of is we were awarded a grant uh, from HRSA on a workforce uh, on the workforce topic. So it's a HRSA workforce grant. Um, it's a it's a uh, really hyper focus for us on getting uh, more of those frontline workers into the facilities. I know we talk a lot about nursing and the critical need there, and absolutely that is all 100% correct. I think the thing that sometimes goes under the radar is a lot of and what we hear from our members in facilities are just even those frontline jobs, Jackie, like environmental services, dietary, even CNAs, et cetera. So, you know, kind of support staff areas is probably a general, broad general term there. But um, we're really excited about that. It's a four-year grant. We just literally found out we were awarded uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so we're kind of just starting to dive into that heavy. So uh, that's kind of one area we think we can help. But I think uh, it's really going to be just a group effort statewide to try and find folks to get back into healthcare. I know everybody is suffering from worker shortage. I don't care what business you're in, what industry. Um, you know, the problem we have is we can't cut our hours. We can't, you know, I mean, mm. if people are sick or people need a place to live, you have to open the doors. Right. And that's where we, where our members really, really run into that workforce crunch. Right. Uh, well, I look forward to uh, following up on that HRSA grant, uh, but we have to close out for now. The conversation continues, though. My guest has been Tim Rave, president and CEO of the South Dakota Association of Healthcare Organizations, talking about the challenges facing long-term care in South Dakota. Tim Rave, thank you so much for your time. We'll talk again soon. Anytime, Jackie. Let me know. Love to, love to come back and talk. So, so thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. There are hundreds of semi-trucks traveling South Dakota highways at any given moment. We all understand that accidents between passenger vehicles and semi-trucks can be especially deadly. But a new documentary shows these deaths could be prevented. PBS Frontline and ProPublica partner for America's Dangerous Trucks. The film airs and is available to stream starting tonight. And A.C. Thompson is the documentary's correspondent and co-producer who joins me now by phone. A.C. Thompson, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me on. So this film uh, focuses almost entirely on a very specific kind of crash between passenger vehicles and semi-trucks called underride crashes. Tell us a bit about uh, why these particular crashes were uh, worth a focus of an entire Frontline documentary. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, really what we were thinking was something like this. There are more than 40,000 people being killed on America's roads every year. Those numbers have been going up and up and up. And that's such a huge number to get your arms around. It's really hard to do something on, on all of those crashes and, and, you know, really do the overview. But what we realized, myself and my team, is that if we looked at one particular type of crash, maybe that would provide us with insight into why our roads have gotten so violent, so dangerous. I think that's really what happened. What we found when we started looking at underride crashes, which are when a large truck and a smaller passenger vehicle like a car, an SUV, or a pickup collide, and the smaller vehicle goes beneath the rear or the side of the truck, 
when we started looking at those, it really turned out to be a microcosm of what's gone wrong with roadway safety and safety policy in the U.S. over the last 50 years. The federal regulators had been aware that this was a big problem, that, that the injuries uh, and the likelihood of death from these types of collisions were very, very high. And they really took effectively no action on fixing that problem for decades. And that sort of slow pace, that sort of lethargy, and honestly, um, you know, sort of bowing down to industry, I think ripples out broadly through our, our safety agencies. And we find this in so many industries, I feel, where there's this tension between regulation and safety concerns and the sort of free market, how do we stay in business? Um, and you, in, in the course of this film, you get some interesting answers from people, including folks within, within the trucking industry representing those interests about at what point it, uh, the cost versus, versus potential lives saved tips the scale. Uh, what surprised you about what you learned? Yeah, you know, the, when, when you talk to, to truck drivers and you talk to representatives of fleet owners and fleet owners, like they, they have legitimate concerns. Like they don't want to get stuck with government-mandated technology that doesn't work. They don't want to pay a huge amount of money for technology that's not going to be um, that effective, that's not going to save that many lives. On the other hand, when we looked at, at this issue in depth, what we found was that the trucking industry had been resistant to making even modest changes to its um, fleet, to its equipment from 1960s on. You know, so when the government is saying in the early 1980s, hey, this is going to cost uh, you an additional $50 per semi-trailer to make these trailers better and to make it less likely that people will slip under the rear of them and get decapitated, the industry came back and they said, well, first off, we think it's going to cost $127 per trailer. We don't want to pay that. Secondly, that cost is going to sink the whole U.S. economy and just do you know, un awful harm to the entire country, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to pay $127 more per trailer. And, and you really look at that and you think, that's just even $1981. It's mm. not that much money. And this is a, a, a pretty simple change you could make, and, and you're looking at an industry that, you know, at some point is totally resistant to basic, cheap, common-sense changes. Other times I think that they have legitimate uh, complaints about, you know, we don't want to spend gazillions of dollars for something that's not going to be particularly helpful. Right. Uh, talk to us about your partnership in, in the making of this film with ProPublica and the data aspect, because uh, a big part of this uh, storyline of the film as well hinges on, uh, well, we don't have the data to prove that uh, adding these uh, barriers on the sides or on the back of trailers could actually be as effective. Right. And so that was the issue all along. Let's, you know, the government and the safety advocates are considering, are we going to put st steel um, guards on the sides of trucks, on the rears of trucks, or are we going to make the ones on the rear of trucks stronger so they can withstand a crash? And the debate, as you said, just kept coming back to data. And I was a little bit shocked as a reporter to find, like, hey, the federal government, through the safety agencies, 
tracks every fatal uh, roadway death, collision, accident, every every death on the road each year, more than 40,000. And it has a lot of detailed information about most of those deaths. But this was a has been um, a factor they really have not been looking at, even though they knew since the 60s that this was a problem. And so to this day, the government will tell you, we have data about these underwrite crashes. We have data about how many people are killed in them. But you can't rely on our data because it's not good, and the number's probably much, much, much higher than what is actually in our data set. That inability to quantify the number of deaths and like give people a sense of the scale of the problem has been one of the key reasons it's been so hard to develop safety regulations. You can't make a, a safety regulation at the federal level, unless you can say, look, we're going to save this many lives each year with the safety rule. And without good data, it's very hard to do that. Some some hearts and minds are, are changed by data. Some hearts and minds are changed by uh, stories and the human impact. Uh, one of the stories featured in, in, in this documentary, uh, the Hine family, uh, Eric Hine, a father that you speak with, whose 16-year-old son is killed in an underride accident. Talk to me about sitting down with Mr. Hine, uh, hearing, hearing that story and where he sits today, how, how this loss has informed the rest of his life. Yeah, I'll tell you, it, it's hard for me. I, I'm a parent of a 13-year-old boy, and mm-hmm. it's hard to think about losing a child like that, particularly at that young age. It is just a brutal, brutal thing. The thing with Riley Hines' story, uh, Eric Hines' son, Riley was 16. Mm -hmm. He was driving to school in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was going in early for band practice. He played the trombone. He got into a collision with a semi-truck hauling um, dough that kind of moved over into his lane, and he got pinned underneath the truck. The truck dragged him down the highway. His car caught on fire, and he was burnt to death at 16 years old. And Eric, his father, started looking into this, and he heard a story on NPR about this issue and came to the conclusion that, look, there is a technology out there that would have kept this from happening. My son could still be alive. These steel guards that you can put on the underbelly of trucks between the front and rear wheels, that would have saved his life. He sued the trailer company that manufactured the trailer involved, the semi-trailer involved in the collision, prevailed, won a nearly $19 million jury verdict. And in the wake of that, that company became, I believe, the first uh, major company to offer these guards as uh, equipment on their trailers. I'm thinking about uh, the person who was driving that truck. Um, you know, there are the business arguments and the data arguments, but I'm I'm imagining, you know, obviously the family experiences this loss as well of a loved one in these crashes, but I'm thinking about the, the truck driver that is able to walk away but carries the fact that they were a part of this deadly crash as well. Where did that anywhere in in your research in in this film uh, come up as far as what the drivers then have to deal with in the aftermath of these crashes? You know that's a great question. I actually um, went to go find the driver in that incident, and um, 
went looking for that person for a week uh, in a different city than, than where I live and could not find them or could not get them to call me back or, or answer the door. So I don't know exactly what that person feels because I was interested in that question, you know, not like a blame question, but like, what is it like to, right. sur- you know, to survive as a driver one of these incidents? When you meet drivers, they're like everyone else. They don't wake up and want to kill someone. They wake up and they want to go to work and they know they're driving the most dangerous vehicles on the road. So I don't think there's, you know, having been at the trucking conventions and so forth, you don't meet people who are, uh, you know, unconcerned about human life. You meet decent people who work very, very hard, who would much rather come home without going through an incident like that. I think that's the general vibe. Right. Um, the another interesting piece you talk about the the lengthy history. This is not a new problem uh, or a new conflict between regulatory agencies and the trucking industry. Um, it's and, and to that end, it uh, it almost seems to defy you know which political party is in charge of yeah. the federal regulations at any given time. It was interesting that um, the current administration uh, originally said yes to you and then backed out. Um, what what. What does that tell you as a as a journalist looking at this long arc of history about the way things get done? Yeah, it's um, it's pretty sad, I would say. You know, and I, I think what you see in Washington is you see Congress passes a law directing NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, to do something. They say, make a study, make a regulation, take action. And they'll do, they did that in 2012, they did it in 2015, they did it in 2021. And what you see from NHTSA is it takes them not months, not years, but often decades to act, or a decade to act. And meanwhile, you have people dying on our roads. And I understand that this is an agency that needs to, to act um, carefully, that its actions can have unintended consequences that are not good, but it seems to operate at a glacial pace that does not reflect the seriousness of what is happening on our roads, you know, and and that's like through Republican and Democrat administrations. Mm -hmm. In our last minute or so together, AC Thompson, uh, when I, when I watched this film, uh, and immediately ended, I thought, man, I'm even more nervous about driving next to a semi-truck on the highway than I was initially. Um, but I wonder what your hope is for the takeaway for the average viewer. Not so much, I can't imagine your goal is to scare people. <laughs> I'm imagining your goal is to bring light to an issue. What do you hope people take away and the, the ripples are from this investigation? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, Fundamentally, I don't think that we as a society should be accepting uh, the idea that more than 40,000 people should die every year on our roads. I think fundamentally we should be unhappy about that reality and we should be working to change it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways to change it, but that is not something we should accept. That's what I'm hoping people take away. America's Dangerous Trucks airs tonight at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain on SDPB-TV. You can also stream the documentary at pbs.org or the PBS video app starting tonight. My guest has been correspondent and co-producer A.C. Thompson. Thank you again for your time and for your work. Thank you. 
Now let's take a moment for a sweet gig. As a Sioux Falls City Council member, much of Kurt Sale's life is public, but not everyone knows about his massive sweet tooth or that pie is his favorite dessert to slake his cravings. Recently, the retired fire captain and insurance agent volunteered to serve as a judge for the American Pie Council National Pie Championships. Sale spoke with Laura Rohde about his lifelong love of pie and his ultimate goal, to keep life interesting. My mom is one of the best pie crust makers, in my opinion, in all of the United States. It, uh, she learned that from her mother, and then my grandma would make pies for us, and my mom would make pies. And It's something that didn't happen on a, a daily basis, but when you got a pie, you knew you were going to get one of the best crusts out there. It's flaky. It's a, it, I won't say it's very moist. It's a, it's a little drier than most people like, but it's really light and really flaky. It holds together well when you cut it, and yet it's not, so it's not like a piece of cardboard. It's been years since I've made a pie, but my years at the fire station, I would take my mother's pie crust recipe and I would make pies for the guys at the station. I wouldn't do it on a regular basis, but when the opportunity arose, I knew how to roll out a good pie dough. What would it take to become a judge at the National Pie Championships? I applied and was chosen and got the opportunity to go down there and test some great pies. And then they would pass the piece of pie around that the judges would then slice off a little bit for themselves and then we, you could taste it, and then you would judge it on the taste and consistency of the filling, the taste and consistency of the crust, and then the overall appearances of each piece. So we tasted 19 pies. For me, that's two bites out of each piece. So by the time you're done, you're quite full. Well, I think it started somewhere in my 50s where the, the my kids were out of the house, and they're starting families of their own, and they were very stable, and you just think, am I going to do the same thing that I did this year, next year, and next year, and next year? And that's when I raised my hand and ran for the city council. I've been restoring an old pickup, things that were challenging that, that I hadn't done before that I want to try and do. See, what else is there out there that a guy like me can do? I have not got that planned yet. After the National Pie Championships, everything seems to be a little pale, a little vanilla in, in challenges. So I want to be challenged, and I want to be able to give give back some of the benefits and the, and the blessings that I've been having. So I don't know what that next challenge is going to be. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh. Theater and hip-hop fans alike may be delighted to know that the ongoing South Dakota Shakespeare Festival is adding a modern musical spin to Shakespeare's words. Devin Glover, nicknamed the Sonnet Man, is a rapper, poet, and playwright. He's known for adapting Shakespeare's sonnets into hip-hop, which he performs around the world, including in Vermilion on Thursday. The festival's interim art director, Rebecca Bailey, joins us now from SDPB's studio on the University of South Dakota campus in Vermilion. We'll talk about Devin's upcoming performance and other festival events. Uh, Rebecca Bailey, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, tell us more about Devin Glover and why he's a great fit for our South Dakota Shakespeare Festival. 
So Devon has been, um, I've, I've listened to some of his work before and I've had the chance to interact with him. And we really set forth this year in the festival to try and plan things that reached out to, to different demographics so that there was really something for everybody here at this year's festival. And so we incorporated that through our events throughout the week, but then we also thought about in the performances. Um, so our performance, The Celebration of Shakespeare, which I, I will take a minute to say, is Friday, Saturday, Sunday at 7 p.m. at Prentice Park. <laughs> um, that performance is, is sort of um, a classic as far as the text goes. It's, it's the words of Shakespeare being brought to life uh, and often with some modern play in there, right? But but it's Shakespeare's words. And we said, well, what else can we do that, that sets out to look at it in a different way, um, that breaks down the language in a way that might interact with a different audience, um, or, or give us a new way to think about something, right? Mm -hmm. um, how, do we, how do we change the way we're looking at this? And Devon was just an obvious choice. Um, he's, he's really incredible, has a, a really fresh take on it, um, has the experience performing it, as you said, around the world, um, in all sorts of amazing works and he also really fit with our education standpoint um, he does workshops he, he's done those in a variety of different locations so he's doing three different workshops for us um, while he's here in town so so really just all around uh, gave us a chance to to offer something different and that's such a great thing that Devon is doing and bringing him here to add to that. Um, I, I will tell you, I'm in a group with some uh, SDPB hosts, and, and we had mm -hmm. an exercise where we picked a random sonnet by Shakespeare and tried to sight-read it in a, in a way that uh, was authentic to our voice. And uh, a common comment about the experience <laughs> from us, myself included, was uh, Shakespeare isn't so much entertainment to us as he is homework. And you're mm -hmm. transported back to that uh, probably driest way of experiencing Shakespeare's work in that high school uh, reading assignment or something like that. Um, talk to us about uh, what else this festival does to bring Shakespeare to life for folks. Absolutely. I hope the last thing that comes to your <laughs> mind this week is homework. Ugh. And I tell you that as someone who sat and read Shakespeare in classes, and, and now that's one of my primary fields of work. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't where I was, and I was a theater kid, right? Yeah. And it still wasn't my thing. And, and you felt guilty for not being all about Shakespeare because you're a theater kid, and that should be what I liked. And it didn't click for me until I got older, and I, I learned it as something that was never meant to be read on a page. Mm. It's meant to be on its feet. It's the humor and the fun and the, the energy comes from when we hear it out loud. It wasn't meant to be read. It was meant to be heard. Um, it comes as we start to recognize that we change things to a literary text that were written as performance texts. Um, we look at different versions. So when I direct a full Shakespeare show, I will hold uh, four different versions of the script, mm. uh, looking at a folio text, and then I have about three different uh, versions, one of them much more literary, and then going gradually down to the folio, which is the most performative or the closest we have to his words. Um, but to get off of that tangent, this year, um, Devon certainly opens it up listening to that hip-hop beat. And you're right, those sonnets, uh, when we look at those, as they, of course, were written right to be read. Mm. But when we perform those, we often will use those as some basic performance techniques when we're teaching actors Shakespeare because it's a, a manageable bite. Yep. Um, but you're going to hear them as songs if you come to our celebration of Shakespeare. 
um, they turned into music for us this year. And um, the show is, is humorous, it's audience interactive, um, both Devon's and our celebration of Shakespeare are lighthearted, something for kids, something for adults. And our, uh, our pieces this week, tonight is trivia at the Dakota Brick House, and that's at 8 p.m. So you can come test your knowledge, and there'll be lots of laughs. But tomorrow night is the adult Shakespeare comedy slash improv, and that's at 8 p.m. at the Varsity. And I promise you, if you have any concern about Shakespeare being homework, <laughs> that will solve any concerns you have. There may or may not be drinks involved. There may or may not be... Um, a little different take on things, but I think it will serve to be a uh, memorable and laughable experience. So I think we want to do everything we can to break down. If you thought this was the, the thing you read in your high school English class, I promise you there's more to it than that. Um, right. And hopefully you had a great teacher. There are fantastic teachers, by the way. Yeah, who I do, do want to say, I mean, feet. no disrespect to my English no. lit teachers listening to me. It's not you, it's me. That's sometimes when you're told to do something, it takes the fun out of it, and that's not your fault. <laughs> sure, and it, it sounds like a foreign language, right? right? When, we're, when we're young. And, and amazingly enough, it's it's more regular, regular language than we think it is. It's the syntax mm. of how those sentences get put together that's actually a little more different. But... It is. We're told to do it. It seems hard, and, and we're reading something, but we are learning so much more about how to bring it to life and, and how to educate and teach about it, um, that we hear it, that we get it on its feet, that we find the jokes in it. Um, and I really hope South Dakota Shakespeare Festival gives you a chance to, to see what else is available for it. Uh, in our last couple minutes together, uh, tell me a bit about how the community of Vermilion gets involved, what kind of uh, turnout you're seeing uh, uh, in our last couple moments together. Well, to begin with, we have an incredible board that is entirely based in this community. I finished my uh, graduate work here at USD, and I got to be a part of the board at that point. And the, the community just comes together. Um, the folks that are that are working for that really have a passion for what it is they're doing, but they have a passion for this area, for this community, and what they mm. can bring to it to make something special here. Mm -hmm. um, and when we gathered <coughs> just last night, Excuse we were me. doing a dress rehearsal out in the, the park, and we had community who just came by, sat down, and, and stayed to watch. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there are people with an interest, yeah. and they, they want to see great things here. Um, we had Bark with the Bard on Sunday. We right. have, if you haven't seen our uh, Facebook pictures, there are some precious pups. Check out the pups. I've got to cut you off for now, but the of South course. Dakota Shakespeare Festival continues through June 18th in Vermilion. Devon Glover's workshop is on Thursday in Prentice Park. My guest has been Rebecca Bailey. Thank you for your time. I hope I see folks in Verm. I hope we see you here. Thank you so much.
just heard a bit of Jen Howard's song, Focus. She's performing at the Red Rooster Coffee House in Aberdeen tomorrow. That's Wednesday, June 14th. Lori Walsh caught up with Jen while she was on the road for her tour through the rolling landscapes of Montana. You are going to be in the Red Rooster, one of my favorite places in South Dakota to hang out. It's in the city of Aberdeen, and you're on the road. What is it like to be on the road as a musician right now after the pandemic, but not too far after the pandemic? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, It's been great so far. uh, You know, just being able to... um, go to, to different cities and meet different communities and it's been such a warm welcome and I've met such incredible people um, that regardless of, of how much the pandemic may have separated us um, I've been feeling really connected and, and it's just been so heartwarming yeah so I'm I'm super um, honored to be able to to play for everyone and and uh make those connections and just see people in person, you know, one-on-one. Yeah. It's uh, really humanizing. Yeah. Yeah. I I know as an audience member, I just, that was one of the things that I missed the most during lockdowns or, you know, just when things were not running as smoothly as they could, just that interaction Mm -hmm. between an artist and an audience um, member. That's nice to know that is back. Do you find inspiration on the road for writing or is it time to travel and perform and, and writing happens at some other you know, season in your life? Um, I feel like you have to have the, you know, life experiences in order to have things to write about and things to talk about. And um, so far, I feel like I have, I mean, I've been out uh, on this tour for a little over two weeks, and I feel like I have a million stories to tell already. So, um, so the, the writing is happening you know, during the downtime in between when I'm waiting to, you know, to go on um, or when I'm in the hotel room, you know, and I have a, a few minutes before bedtime. Um, but there's really, it's just been such a wonderful experience that I feel like I do have a lot to kind of report on and, you know, kind of talk about yeah. as far as the experiences that I've, I've been having. Yeah. Yeah, but talking about life experiences, you write on your website that, you know, you were writing songs at the age of 11 that tapped into sort of a universal human experience, but not necessarily based on, you know, any kind of emotional maturity coming from an 11-year-old. How has sure. that kind yeah. of changed, and how do you look <laughs> back on the, the, the what you were writing then and say, oh, that that's who that girl was. That was how she saw the world. It's got to be so fascinating to have that record of your own work. Absolutely. Um, I think the I think the key is like perspective, right? So as myself as a kid writing, I remember that it was really because I wanted because I had things to say and I wanted to be heard. And I think I was also figuring out how to like process and, and move through the things that were happening in my life. And so that's like what I wrote about. Yeah. As an adult looking back on those things and those life experiences, I have, you know, a totally different perspective and um, a real, like, compassion and grace for myself. And Mm. then also, it's really joyful, even though I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that I probably wrote when I was, like, in my teens was a little more emotional and emo, and I I think that kind of happens for a lot of people. Um, 
you know, at that age, because you're trying to figure life out and like how life makes you feel. And when things don't work out, how do you, you know, um, come out of it? Well, maybe, maybe we don't think about coming out of it as a better person because we're like a team. We're just trying to get through it, you know? Um, So as an kind of understand, you know, where I came from and the stuff that I went through and how and shape you mm-hmm. um, as an adult and then how you can acknowledge them for what they were and then let them go. And and then it becomes a situation where you kind of recognize that in others. Mm-hmm. So, like, I have a lot more understanding and compassion for people who have been through, you know, similar things that I've been through because I'm like, oh, I know what that feels like. I know where you're at, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's easier to... You can kind of connect a little bit more and relate to people when you've had similar life experiences, and um, and and that can be um, a place of understanding, you know, and um, and then positivity and like motivation and like, hey, it's going to be okay. You know, I did it too. I went through it too. (laughs) Because I kind of feel like that right now. I kind of feel like, you know. Uh, what I've chosen to do as a career path and, you know, going out on the road and really putting in the work and the hours and playing the shows and meeting the people. um, It's nice to see so many women and girls and kids that are like, wow, you're out here doing it. And I'm like, yeah, if I can do it, you can do it too. Yeah. You know, Um, it's really encouraging um, and has been, you know, it's really been reciprocal. Like I'm encouraged by the people who are encouraged just to, you know, just to see each other. And I like, I'm so, um, I feel so blessed to be able to just play, you know, play for people and like provide an atmosphere of, or, you know, an environment of like positivity and joy and, you know, freedom to dance. Like, (laughs) you know, last night there was a a couple of little girls and some, some moms that were like, dancing along while I was playing and like that that is just you can't can't replace those moments you know right right it's still out there it's still tangible we can still do it yeah let's talk a little bit about your music I'm noticing themes of you know the ocean and nature and the natural world how how do natural spaces sort of intersect with you thematically um I I just haven't incredible amount of respect for nature and you know mother earth and uh air wind water fire you know um and and the ground um i think that i think that so nature is incredibly important as humans you know it's where we came from uh it is it's our our past and our future and even though you know even though we move like closer to technology and into this age of AI and everything, you know, it seems to be um, something that is really on the forefront right now. Something that you can't replace is like your body's, you know, um, nervous system and the way that your nervous system interacts with nature and with animals even. And like there are these tools and, and these things that we can use to help ourselves um, really ground and and come back into the present moment. And so for me, nature is really is that. It really helps to deal with anxiety or depression or loneliness. You know, um, if you get your feet in some grass or on the dirt, you know, um, 
there's a you know, electromagnetic charge, you know, that happens that really will help your nervous system um, regulate. And so it, for me, it's a, uh, it's therapeutic, but then also like, you know, where I came from as part of, part of who I am. And, you know, yeah. um, I have a lot of respect for the natural world and I just, I love it. And I want to share that with people. It's, yeah, it's funny. I, just this morning I went out and just took my shoes off and walked in the grass and I brought my phone with me to take pictures. And then I realized I was taking pictures as almost an excuse for just being out, you know, in a field by myself walking around. <laughs> like people won't yeah. think that I'm, uh, you know, unhinged if they see that I'm, oh, I'm taking pictures <laughs> of flowers. And I'm like, well, when did that happen to me? When, when you know, when did it become essential to do something versus just put your feet in the, yeah, in the earth and you, breathe. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. When did you need permission to, to just sit still yeah. and yeah. And outside, outside is really important. And I think that's something that kind of connects back to your question earlier about the pandemic it was like the pandemic really for a lot of us that were in bigger cities, like I was stuck inside of my apartment for you know two and a half months so and I you know it's not like I wasn't allowed to go outside but um where I live in Venice California Mm -hmm. there was very much like if you were out during the day the cops in the beginning the police would you know say hey you're not supposed to be out here you need to go back inside so there and, and and there was reason for that because you know in the beginning of the pandemic no one really knew what was going on or what the severity level of it or was and you know so um i think now like now that everything is somewhat back to what we were accustomed to you know it's okay to go outside but then like having that space in that moment of time of not being able to go outside um kind of i feel like that residue is kind of like wearing off right Right. So, like, we got to remember to still do that. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> it's I'll... okay to do that. We're allowed <laughs> to do that. The world is a big, beautiful, amazing place. And, like, to witness it and to see it is really just, it's a, it's a, it's a joy. It's a wonderful yeah. thing. The world Everyone is should do it. <laughs> big, beautiful place and enjoy it with Jen Howard's music. Welcome to South Dakota when you cross the border. We're so happy to have you here And uh, we really uh, are appreciative that you took time for SDPB listeners today, too. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. And I can't wait to see you all. Yeah. Jen performs tomorrow at the Red Rooster Coffee House in Aberdeen. That's our show for today. We hope that it served you. Thanks to all our guests. Join me tomorrow for an update from the Dakota political junkies. Seth Tupper and Jonathan Ellis join the program. Until then, I'm Jackie Hendry in for Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.